Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to Lakeside Drive. In this episode, recorded here in London... I'm joined by the founder of The Female Drive, Estelle Clapham. The work Estelle is leading stems from a deep belief in equity and inclusivity, as well as a lifelong motivation to be part of helping to understand and solve problems. Our conversation for this podcast is a bit of a roller coaster, but it does reflect the reality of the highs and the lows that people experience in the world of motorsport. In chatting with Estelle, it became really clear that her willingness to dive into the darkest corners and the immense challenges within the F1 culture truly comes from a place of love and with nothing more than a motivation to see a world where everyone feels safe and can truly participate in this wonderful sport. If you're not familiar with Estelle's work, I recommend heading over to The Female Drive on Instagram as a starting place and checking it out. That will also help provide a bit of context to this episode. Let's get stuck into it though. It's a big one, so maybe make a cuppa and settle in. Okay, welcome to Lakeside Drive. I'm joined by a very special guest today, Estelle Clapham, not named after the suburb, although we are in London. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it's my namesake somewhere. I have to look down the history line. I probably own Clapham Junction. Well, I think you might want to look into that because you might have some great fun. I'm sure I do. I'm sure I come from nobility, I'm sure. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me here on Lakeside Drive. We are in the Lunny, like the sunny London which is you've escaped a winter in Australia yeah for English summer which is marginally better well I'm based in Byron Bay uh, back Ah. home so the temperatures are very similar right now right um maybe a touch colder at times but yeah yeah, no it feels like it I I actually love a London summer I think it's like when the city comes to life so I don't hate it I think it's the best time of year but yeah I haven't escaped too cold a winter. <laughs> I'm not based say. in Melbourne. The low is not uh, that you know. low then. Yeah, okay, all yeah, right. We'll no. pretend like our Melbourne list- yeah. listeners aren't <laughs> listening to that. How's your trip been so far? It's been amazing. It's been so full on. Um, it always is whenever I come back. Um, but, yeah, it's been so good. Everything, um, you know, straight off the bat I landed and had an event straight up. So it was intense and in the lead up it was yeah, full on, but yeah, excited to be here and just loving it. I always love coming back. It feels like a, although I'm Australian, it feels like a homecoming every time. Yeah. So I feel like this is my place. So yeah, it's great. Well, like I said, you you are the namesake. So maybe yeah. there's something there as to why you feel so comfortable, but I completely agree. London in the summer is yeah. such a special thing. We came and we immediately went to day five of the Lord's Ashes tour. It's like just the best day of test cricket. You've ever You're seen. very game yeah. well, as an Australian. We kept, we kept a little bit quiet, I'm not going to lie. Um, and then, you know, look, we had the last laugh at the end of that one and then we can just act yeah. like Leeds never happened. Yeah. Um, and then went off to Wimbledon and then Silverstone as well. So it's been our summer sporting 
spectacular. <laughs> I mean, amazing. I got approached in the pub the other night um, by someone talking about the ashes and mm. I just, you know, bolted for the door. I wasn't going into it. No <laughs> thanks. No thank you. That is a safe bet. Look, after our kind of sporting adventures here, I have to say, we yeah. were like, I think it's time for us to go home. Yeah. Actually, why yeah. don't I say our welcome a little bit? I saw what happened in, as they walked to the changing room. I don't need that in my real life. No, no. Oh my goodness. Absolutely <laughs> shameful. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right. Let's get talking about motorsport because that is what we are here for yeah. and I like to start with what brings us together which is motorsport it's a thing which we all love we love to talk about we love to watch it um, and I always find it intriguing to understand how it was introduced to our lives so you're a long time F1 supporter but yeah. motorsport more broadly where did it all start for you? It's a tricky one for me to pinpoint exactly where it started because as long as I can remember, I've kind of watched F1. Um, it was always obviously trickier in Australia, but, you know, with the introduction of cable TV and things like that, uh, it got a little easier. Um, but surprisingly, I stumbled upon something recently. I always knew my father was into uh, the V8 supercars, uh, my father but also my grandfather were into the V8 supercars in Australia which is like our pinnacle of motorsport yeah yep. um and it wasn't until my grandfather passed away actually that I found so many photos of him at Mount Panorama back really? in the 50s and he was at some of the first Australian Grand Prix ever um which back then um obviously they're very different cars um but yeah. yeah he was he was at the beginning of it he was yeah. a photographer and took amazing photos oh, and incredible and we used to watch uh Bathurst every year together yeah. uh, when we could and uh yeah so I think from the Australian side of things that was definitely the introduction to motorsport generally. Um, but F1, I, I cannot pinpoint where exactly it came about. My father and my brother were into it, but maybe not so much as me. And it was kind of this, like, it sounds crazy to say it was like a closeted fan yeah. you know, thing yeah. because it was one of those things you just didn't talk about with people because most of the time they didn't know what it was mm. or they had no interest it just really wasn't a thing and especially as a woman if you found someone that was interested they tend to like tell you yeah. what <laughs> what it is and you were yeah. like mm, yeah all right I so, think we could just discuss this together but all right <laughs> I'll listen yeah it kind of like when you would bring it up it kind of felt like a parking inspector at a party you know yeah. like no one really wanted to talk to you so <laughs> it was like one of those like closeted like fan things that yeah. I just kind of kept to myself and would check when I couldn't watch it I'd be checking the results and you know reading up on it so yeah, yeah it just yeah, it just naturally kind of came to be. And as I got older and had more choices and, yeah, just got more absorbed into it. Yeah. Sounds like it kind of was in your blood in a little way in terms of just that, the interest and the passion for it. And it is really interesting because, you know, we do have, we have a lot of listeners who are first generation supporters, let's yeah. call it that. And you've got others who, you know, have those really early memories. That must be very special to have along with potentially some of the physical evidence as well with photos and stuff from your grandfather that's incredible yeah and I think you know like I look back to like when Ayrton Senna died and I was a baby yeah and so I wasn't really around for that but I remember the longevity that impact had and hearing people talk about yeah. it and I think from there it kind of piqued my interest into being like why is this person so mourned and so loved yeah. and I think that is honestly where I guess the interest kind of lay because I was like why would you do this? You know, yeah. like why on earth would you do this if it means that? And I think that kind of is 
where I kind of took interest, I suppose, because I, as a child you're kind of like, what the hell is going on? And then uh, once you kind of start, and I think everyone knows this, once, it, once you start you literally cannot stop. You're absorbed into it. There's just no – there's no grey area. It's like you're all in or nothing. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that in that you have these kind of mythical almost characters um, that kind of come from those early years and we weren't around to remember it or kind of have a strong memory of our own and yet it lives on so strongly and you can talk about it almost as though you were there because it is such a – you know, it's, it's strange to call – a fatal incident iconic but it but it was because I think it did remind people of just how dangerous the sport was and we've been reminded um recently you know of course how dangerous it still is and I think there's a bit of a false sense of security now that we have safety um things like the halo and whatnot but um very interesting to see that you know it's almost again the the stories that come from these sport that get you hooked And why do you still watch? So if that's your very early years, what is it that keeps you hooked on motorsport and Formula One in particular now? It's an interesting one that I've had to reflect on a lot lately because once you start kind of working alongside it, it does become all-encompassing. And I did recently kind of feel like I was falling out of love with it, which is the first time in my life I've ever felt that. Um, so I was supposed to go to Silverstone over the weekend and I made a really conscious effort after just being exhausted and sick to actually step away from it because, and I, and I decided not to go because I felt this kind of, um, it was the first time ever that I was kind of like feeling like it was a chore, like it was something that I had to do rather than I wanted to do. Um, so there's been a lot of self-reflection upon that topic like lately because, yeah, I, the last thing I want to do is fall out of love with it. And so it's really hard to to keep it going. But then you watch the race like on Sunday and you're just like, oh, you're on the edge there of the seat. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. the love. And you're like, that's the love. And I think I, that's part of why I love it. And even, you know, I was luckily in, lucky enough to go into the McLaren um, suites and garage last year at Monza. And I was sitting there just thinking like, the paddock is bullshit. Like, <laughs> I really, sorry, but like I was <laughs> sitting apologize. there thinking like, this is not me. I, this part of it, I don't love. Um, but then, you know, the team was so amazing. They got like the headphones for me and I could actually hear what was going on from an engineering perspective. You know, I was allowed to go in and see the car and, and that's what excites me is the engineering side of things, the strategy side of things, like the racing itself. Um, and I've never, ever been drawn to that part of F1 and it's been a huge part of the culture is actually like what celebrities are there and what money and, you know, that side of it has never really excited me too much it's it's It's, definitely the the actual racing side of it that gets me excited yeah for sure we had this conversation with um tony cohen brown when she joined Mm. us on lakeside drive and she was saying you know people it's very easy for people to get that impression from you from the outside in particular and she said look let's be honest particularly as a female um you know they might see you in whatever garage or suite or um you know whichever sponsor it might be and she said you know you get comments being like oh you're just there to sip champagne she's like Sorry, that I can do that whenever I want. But yeah. I'm here to learn, and actually, that is not something that I find particularly interesting. That's you know, standing around drinking champagne is really quite boring. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here to try and bring information to people who are not lucky enough to be yeah. at 
you know the event to learn about the technology and the how the developments have changed for this race and what the team are doing differently and all of this stuff and they need someone to help them to facilitate that and that's what I'm doing bringing that information to people who are not you know obviously if only we could have every single person there to listen in yeah um, but we can help to facilitate you know that information across um I think it's really interesting. I really share that experience with you. And, you, and we're not the only ones. We know that from our listeners and we yep. see it on Discord and we see it from people we chat to all the time where you have these moments where you do fall out of love with a sport for one reason or another mm. and then all you need is an Austria or a Silverstone yeah. for the last two races <laughs> and it suddenly you get hit with that, um, the intensity of the racing yeah. um, and the competition and you're sitting on the edge of your seat and you just go, this is, this is what I love. When you were watching motorsport in kind of your earlier years, um, did you ever notice the lack of diversity, in particular the lack of kind of women around or you just didn't register at that point? I mean, I'm already, you can probably hear through the microphone, I'm already like sighing and <laughs> you can't tell but I'm rolling my eyes. Um, they might have been audible, it's all right. I mean, oh my gosh, seriously, the eye roll was so heavy yeah. you probably could hear it. Um <laughs> No, I, I mean, obviously, yes. And mm. I think um, it's one of those things and we see this so often in life, especially as women, is we actually never question it because we have a whole society that's built like this. Um, so seeing it in sport is one of those things that you don't really question at all. It really wasn't until Lewis Hamilton came into the sport that I really started to question things and I actually felt kind of hopeful. I thought this is a change in terms of diversity and what we can see for the future. And it was a huge thing, him coming into the sport, and people forget that, I think. Mm. Um, and at the time, it was massive. And looking at him then versus now is a very interesting thing in my mind because you see him grow into himself as a person. And I think what we see so often within this sport, but many sports, is that people have to play the game in order to achieve what they yeah. need to achieve. Yep. And I feel like he was absolutely that in the beginning and I think that was how he was brought up you know he he was quoted in Vanity Fair to say that his father said to just keep your head down and kind of keep on with it mm. and um that's that's just not okay first of all yeah but secondly I think um yeah, I think that I had huge hopes in the beginning and what we saw was the complete opposite. We saw it go actually backwards mm. um, and, you know, you look back on the uh, 2008 blackface incident and mm. for me as a person and as a white person, I'm sitting there listening to Bernie Eccleston saying it's not a problem, David Coulthard saying it's not a problem and so you're going, is it a problem or isn't it a problem because yeah. it doesn't feel good but everyone's telling me it's not a problem so yeah. maybe it's not Yeah. and I think you kind of get like, I hate the term gaslight, but like you, you're kind of gaslit as a fan all yeah. the time to believe that there are no issues but as you get older and obviously more aware of it, you, you go, actually, no, I'm genuinely not okay with this anymore and yeah. we need to do stuff to to create change. Well, I think to your point about Lewis Hamilton coming in, completely right and it's very easy to forget and it's almost like you can't see the absence of something until it's then introduced to the scene, if that makes sense. You know, you don't really go, it's very easy to not see that there's no people of colour or no women or something in a, in a scene or a montage until you actually put them in and you go, oh, wait a second, there's only one. And suddenly that helps to say, 
oh, there is a problem here or I see an imbalance and now let's understand if that is in fact a problem. And like you said, that response of it's not an issue. I remember the, those comments from David Coltard basically saying like I think people are making a big deal out of nothing. Yeah. And similarly even when we you know, we'll talk about um, what we're learning about online comments and things like that more recent years, it's it can be, I don't want to say confusing because that is again diminishing the issue Mm. but when you see other people's responses it's very easy to say wait a second am I only saying it this way because I'm a woman for example Mm -hmm. but then you go well this is about somebody who I don't share that characteristic with and yet I feel really uncomfortable why you know and like you said it comes back to going like I'm a human (laughs) and if those things were being it doesn't it doesn't feel right. It comes back to that humanity. I know I'm rambling a little bit here. But it, you, when you have that discomfort and it's not even directed at your own um, characteristic, let's put it in that yeah. phrase, something can't be right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. When you started talking about that in terms of saying, oh, we've got a challenge here that we need to overcome. What were some of the reactions you had from um, either your you know, family who have been involved in motorsport or support of the sport or other friends who might have watched? What were their responses? My parents always say to me, you can't change the world um, because they know that I am always <laughs> everything I do in my life. If I see an injustice, I'm like, this is not okay. Yeah. Um, and they always just say, like, you're going to tie yourself out. You cannot change the world. And, and they're saying it from a loving place because they know that I get so emotionally attached to um, injustices. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think about them all the time. And so, like, I think they were quite shocked and the, the funny thing is I'm not like a sporty person at all like I love sports but I, I'm not athletic I used to hit the lane ropes when I went swimming like I was terrible at sports like my dad would have dreams about how bad I was at sports he thought it was so funny like um so I think my family as a whole were quite shocked that now I am the person that is working in the sporting world and they just cannot believe it but I think it's been interesting for them because they know that I'm doing this with all of my heart and they feel protective in a way because I think they know and especially, you know, the ones that follow F1 understand the battles that I'm kind of coming up against. But, yeah, Um, I think they're generally supportive. But I think they were, yeah, definitely shocked and obviously are very protective of where this goes from here. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you can see that it's coming from a good place and you can still say, I acknowledge that. Thank you. I'm still (laughs) going to go and do the thing. Um, But that feeling of injustice is one, I mean, injustice, a sense of injustice is one of the strongest motivators that exists. You know, when you, and it's one of the reasons that if you see something happen to somebody else in the way that I have very um, inefficiently just described (laughs) of witnessing something happen to somebody else, you can actually feel that response yourself. Yeah. And have that drive to actually go and do something about it. You only have to witness somebody being bullied, being insulted, um, being hurt or caused pain to actually feel that yourself. And that sense of injustice is an incredibly strong mm-hmm. motivator. And we actually we you know we see it in communities where they might have heard that there's a problem going on and they kind of go, oh, yeah, I can see that's an issue, but you're not particularly motivated to actually be part of trying to change whatever it might be. And then when you see it, all of a sudden you feel this drive to actually be to be part of it in terms of trying to come up with solutions, yeah. which 
brings us very neatly to the female drive, <laughs> which I'd love to talk to you about. So female drive is about is dedicated to creating positive change in the world of F1 and motorsport. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what the female drive is? And what I would like to know is what was that tipping point when you went from I'm seeing these things going on and I need to do something about it? Yeah, so I was living in London and um, I didn't have Sky on the TV because I wasn't paying for it. So I would pop down to the pub every Sunday that was a race day and I would go and watch it in the pub on my own with like 10 other men or something, whoever was there on the day. But it was always just me with my beer watching the race. Um, And I lived with two other women and they were kind of like, what are you doing every Sunday? Like, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, Um, one, one of my housemates was Dutch. And so she kind of got it. She understood it. But my other friend is from New York. And so when we went into COVID lockdown, I invested and and bought Sky. uh, Well, you know, whatever to watch it. And, um, you know, they were kind of like, well, we'll watch it too. We'll start watching it. You know, we'll start getting involved. And, um, you know, my housemate from New York was like, if you explain the rules to me, then, and you, you explain it to me, then I'll, I'll watch it and I'll, I'll try and, you know, get involved. And I think it was that creating of a safe space. Like you can ask questions, like, don't feel like you're an idiot if you don't get it. Like, I'm still learning even after all these years of being a fan. So um, I saw something in that and then we're obviously in lockdown and I was like, I really have always felt strongly about why there is lack of representation in the sport. Um, But I was just going off what I knew and experiences that I had had. I really wanted to fully understand what the barriers were. So I launched a podcast. I think I asked, the first person I ever asked was Caitlin Wood, who is a driver from Australia and was driving in W Series at the time. And she said yes. And I was like, oh, shit, now I have to actually do this. (laughs) Like (laughs) I actually have to try and get 10 episodes out. Um, So, yeah, it started as that. And as it started to unravel and you start peeling the layers away, I realised the problems are really serious. Mm -hmm. And... I, I think the female drive name implies that this is about women and it's not about women for me. Yeah. It has never just been about women. Yeah. Um, obviously that is a focal point in being a woman, what I resonate with yeah. mostly. But it was always about I believe that the change comes from women because I believe that when we band together we are like unstoppable. And so for me the podcast obviously had – all different types of guests with all different experiences. And I wanted to look at inclusion as a whole, like where are the barriers? Because yeah. it's not just for women. Yeah. So we've had problems with the LGBTQ plus community, people with disabilities. Like there were so many barriers and the more that the layers started to unravel, I realised that this is a major issue. And so um, probably at the start of 2022, to end of 2021 I'd done two seasons of the podcast and I was like okay you know we've talked about it I'm starting to understand where the issues are um and so I would do more research into it and I just kind of self-reflected and I thought it's all great to talk about it but where's the action and where are we seeing the action at that point we had no f1 academy we had no more than equal we had nothing really that was kind of tipped in that direction so I was like well if not me then who I'm not seeing it from anyone else so it's time to put you know conversation into action 
And so, yeah, it's kind of led into this crazy all-absorbing <laughs> business that, you know, from the outset looks like not much is happening but underneath there's so much churning away. Yeah, I think that's something that I think for initiatives like yours it can be very easily misinterpreted that you, you've got your website, you've got your podcast um, and other people who are not part of what you're building can't see the work behind the scenes and I think that's something that a lot of people part of part of all of the initiatives that are now in place do experience in terms of you can't see the work that goes into what it is that you're creating. Focusing on the podcast just for a minute, as you said, you've hosted guests from a variety of racing categories as well as the way in which they're involved in motorsport. Of the guests and the stories that you have facilitated, whose story um, has really stood out to you um, in terms of having to really persist through those barriers that you're learning about? It's hard to pinpoint just one because I actually loved, I don't think there's a single interview I did that I was like, this is like pulling teeth. This is really hard. Um, But I think for me, the real turning point was I had a young boy, uh, his name's Matthew Newson, and he had spinal cord injury in utero. And he was karting and was apparently like a killer on the track. Absolutely, you know, just all guns blazing, like was incredible. Um, And I think for me, you know, he was a Red Bull fanatic and wanted to be the next Max Verstappen and had, you know, met Alex Albon and had gone to factory and and seen the cars. And he was, he had a budgie called Ayrton Senna. Um, He was like the biggest F1 fanatic but also had all these dreams and ambitions of doing incredible things in the sport. And a part of me walked away from that interview just feeling so happy and joyous and he was just so lovely, you know, as he was eight and could talk like an adult and, you know, was just so excited about being asked on a podcast. Um, But there was a sense of sadness as well in the sense that I hope he never gets crushed. Um, there's this thing of like, and I'm sure we've all experienced it in life where, especially if you're an underrepresented person or minority, um, you come up against a lot of battles. And I think it hurt me to think that this kid that had so much ambition and so much life and energy could meet people along the way that would tell him he couldn't do what he wanted to do. Yeah. And I think for me that was a real wake-up call in the sense that, you know, as adults we forget um, what it's like to be a kid and what it's like to have those dreams and ambitions. And I reflected on my own life story, I suppose, and how I had come up against things that people would tell me I was never going to be good enough or I just didn't want that to happen to him. Yeah. Like you said, he doesn't have the cynicism yet that we as adults, (laughs) the delightful thing about growing up is that you can, you have, you grow this cynicism because like you said, you go, wow, like to be in the presence of somebody who has that type of passion um, as a fan, but then ambition as an individual is so energetic but then all of a sudden you kind of get flooded with this sense of like, but I know better almost in terms of yeah. what the world is probably going to to throw at you. Um, and you have to be so careful in that moment not to be part of it as yeah. well um, in terms of saying I'm not going to be one of those people who says it's going to be tough instead of saying go for it. You know, yeah. 
do the thing. <laughs> and I still experience that as an adult. I'm a huge dreamer and I have huge ambitions and I get really excited about things and I still find like I have childlike almost mentality around things sometimes. I don't know if I should be admitting that. <laughs> but like I kind of go into things very joyous and like very – you know, excited and then people just instantly remind you that like this is reality and yeah. like those things. But you just push through and I, I'm sure he will and I'm sure he yeah. will find amazing ways and he's got obviously supportive parents and, and a brother and he, he whatever he wants to do in life, I'm sure he will achieve it. But yeah. I think it's just this thing of having experienced it before and being an adult, you're just like I never want anyone to experience that. Yeah, and I think it's one of the saddest things as <laughs> it does seem to be a bit of a reality of growing up but maybe it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Um, and we were actually having this conversation recently with a friend of mine where we were actually admiring that trait in a mutual friend of ours because they were they had an event coming up and I was like I love how excited he is about this because we do not see that enough because it's not cool to be excited as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> and so someone was saying, oh, it's so cute that he's so excited, you know, if he wasn't like 37. I'm like. Are you kidding me? It's my favourite thing about him because it shows, you know, how how much energy he has towards that. It shows that you still get those highs and, and like you said, it's I think that is a fabulous trait to have as part of someone's personality. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about people around you who lift you up and who make you then feel a sense of what you're excited about too. It's like, oh, God, it's okay to feel that way. That's fantastic. And I would say that's probably been my favourite part of the whole process is anyone that's surrounding me at the moment would probably agree that I am this massive dreamer and I get super excited and, you know, um, sometimes they have to like look at it logistically and be like, okay, Estelle, how are we, we going to do this? <laughs> um, but I think all in all, like I've been able to surround my people, like myself with the people that will support me and see the love and passion that I have because it's not going away. It's not one of those things that it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to all of a sudden care about diversity and inclusion. Like as a kid I was like that, you know, I was very anti-bullying, like, you know, all of that. I would always feel this way and so it's not going anywhere. So I think if I can put that into action and I have the people around me that support me doing that, it's it's one of the best feelings, 100%, honestly. 100%. And like you said, that's not something that has just come out of nowhere yeah. um, in terms of your, your passion for it. You've created opportunities for women working in F1 to, and motorsport generally to come together and network. You mentioned you had your event um, yeah. not long after you had touched down here. Yeah. What have you learned about being around other women who are in the industry and seeing them come together? You described earlier the powerhouse of women supporting each other in the motorsport industry but in you know, other areas as well. When you're in those situations – what are you thinking and what have you learned from those environments? Whenever I do those events specifically, I always walk away feeling warmth and, and good. Um, they're always quite stressful in the lead up because I am and for a long time have only worked on my own. Um, I obviously have had friends that support and help where they can, but for the most part I do the majority of the work and obviously these events I, I pay for out of my own pocket and, and things like that. But it's just because I genuinely believe in connecting women and them having a nice space to kind of get together and meet each other. And um, so the feeling from them is the same. They always walk away from it and, you know, I love getting their feedback because they're always like, that was so great, it was so good to meet other women. And yeah. 
And, and what it was born out of is I should just probably give it a bit of context. So what it was born out of is I had many friends that were working within teams, a lot of women, and they would come to me and say, you know, I'm going through this. And then I'd have another friend saying, I'm going through this. I'm like, you have the exact same problem. Yeah. Um, you really need to meet. And so I started just connecting them. Um, and then I was in Melbourne for the Grand Prix and Christina Emanuelides, who's a very dear friend and um, works for Alfa Romeo as a CFD engineer, we were sitting there and I said, you know, I'm connecting all these women online. Why can't we just do this in person? Like, wouldn't it be great to get everyone in a room together and actually meet each other so they have this network so they can feel like they're represented, that people understand what they're going through. And I think the hesitation from F1 doing this or even teams doing this is probably that they think that they're going to share information. I can guarantee, like, that's the last thing they want to talk By the about. Way, these are professional people. Like, <laughs> yeah, that have contracts. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that know what they can and can't talk Give about. Give me another excuse. I'm ready. Like, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's been the most outstanding thing is, like, why did it take this girl from Australia to all of a sudden go, like, why don't we connect everyone, you know? And yeah. I find that quite often and people actually ask me sometimes like, why you? And my answer is always like, why not me? No one else has done it. So yep. if we can do it, let's do it. You know, I'm very action. I'm very like, let's not talk about it. Let's let's just do, do it, you know? Yeah. So if it took me having to organise it and pay out of my own pocket and whatever else, like I, I genuinely don't care. It's like worth every cent to yeah. me um, because the joy that they get um, – yeah, and, and the amount of support they feel is yeah. incredible. The sense of not being alone in these things, you know, whatever it might be, the momentary challenges or the bigger picture issues that can be can feel completely overwhelming. When you are put in a room, and obviously this is not just about women working in sport, it's a much bigger conversation, but when you're put in a room with other people who are experiencing the same things and you suddenly realise that you're not the only one going through it or not alone. Yeah. It is just the most supportive, supportive feeling. You know, it's, it's that sense of going, "Oh my gosh, it's not just me. Or I'm not the only one who is facing these issues, who's experiencing these thoughts, um, who you know has got these challenges they need to overcome." And other people might have either be going through the same things. They might have found some solutions that have been really effective for them. They can share. Obviously, not related to car design because. Yeah. <laughs> Like you said, <laughs> professional people who have contracts and know yeah. better. Um, goodness <laughs> me, ridiculous. Um, talking about collaborations and other things that you've been organising and like you said, that action, which is so important. Your collaboration with Areto Labs was honestly pretty confronting. Um, I'm not on Twitter and not that that is the sole location for the dumping ground of disgusting abuse, but it does seem to be the preferred tip for that type of discourse um if we would be so kind as to call it that um and something that when you read through it just makes you want to burn it all down um but before we get to that how did that come about like you said you're kind of talking about podcast and um talking about issues that's one of the things that I would categorize as doing something about it how did that work um come about what motivated that collaboration Someone once asked me um, how I had so many contacts in so many different ways and how I had built up this whole thing so quickly. And I always say the power of women. And the way it came about was we were part of the Women's Sport Collective, which is a UK-based organisation, um, but they're online predominantly and they hold meetings monthly for women to connect within sport. 
Um, they approached me and said, we really like what you're doing. Um, can we just have a chat? And once we got started chatting about everything that I was trying to achieve and do, it just felt like a natural, um, perfect relationship. And it's funny, I always joke that I feel like I work with them, like I work within the company because I'm such a huge supporter of what they're doing and what they've created um, that, you know, and, and there's so much work to come with them. Like what we've seen is just the the tip of the iceberg, I suppose. There's so much work to be done and we're always working on ways which we can do it but yeah it's just honestly the power of women when women have the same interests and the same you know motivation and and that's the thing theirs came from a genuine place as well you don't create a software like that um because you want to make money (laughs) you create a software like that because you see that online abuse and toxic behavior is a huge problem and you don't want to see it anymore and that that's you know their motivations were so honest and so real that I was like it just resonated with me Mm. so it was a no-brainer and I knew we had a huge problem within the F1 community um there's a huge problem society you know in society but I know there was a huge problem within Mm. F1 so out of interest even I was just just wanting to understand what it looked like um it was yeah it was the hardest thing I've ever done yeah um I'm sure we'll talk more to yeah. that um yeah. but yeah it it was just a natural perfect relationship yeah. and it just kind of happened yeah let's talk about it for a little bit if that's yeah. all right yeah, um and I do want to preface with this just saying like when I was reviewing the data findings and everything else I just you just want to bang your head against a wall and yeah. this is coming like you know coming from someone who has seen some things as someone who was a practicing psychologist there is some shocking content, mm-hmm. um, which brings many, many questions um, to mind for me. But first of all, while the information or the content that you you know are reading and reviewing and trying to understand might not have been directed at you, although I wouldn't mind betting that that came afterwards, um, there's plenty that is directed at women. How did it make you feel when you read those comments having to sift through such repulsive and quite frankly depressing content I think I mean there's no denying and from this conversation it's probably very obvious that I'm a huge empath um so even though they weren't directed at me they felt like they were um it is honestly you talk about how do you still love the sport honestly that was for me almost a deal breaker um having to and and I think this is the thing is like seeing it online is one thing and reading the comments and Um, going through it but it's space between supportive comments when it's all in one place it's a pretty dark place Uh, and it's pretty horrific actually and I would just cry a lot (laughs) during the process Um, especially the most confronting thing that I came across and I've documented this in an article that I wrote but the most confronting thing I came across was a doctored image of the George Floyd murder um, where and I'm trying not to get emotional where someone had, um, sorry, someone had photoshopped Max Verstappen's face onto the uh, policeman and he was kneeling on Lewis Hamilton's neck. And that was the most confronting thing I think I came across. Sorry, I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but it is honestly I wish I hope. it's disgusting, that's why. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I have that image stored somewhere because I – 
you know, I just couldn't believe it existed and I, I stored it in the case that, you know, if anyone were to question whether this was real, I, yeah. I wanted to pe- people to know that it was. Um, yeah. But I've never looked at it again. I, I have that same visceral reaction every mm. time I think about it um, because that is no longer um, who's your favourite driver. That is a huge reflection on society and how people view um you know, people of colour and for people to think that because there's a challenge in drivers that they can result to horrific racism is like it's 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 horrible. Like honestly, yeah. one of the most horrible experiences I've ever had. And I think the problem that I find and the reason why I started doing this is because I was sick of people saying there wasn't a problem. So this is this is what I find interesting um, because I think there is the argument that when we draw attention to some of the content, for example, the horrific image that you've just described and say, you know, by drawing attention to it, you're promoting it in a way. Mm. What I would, would be really beneficial I think for people to understand is how highlighting the online abuse is actually helping to draw attention to the issue, like you said, explain that it's this is real and it's out there and it causes harm and that it extends beyond the internet. So I think this is the other thing sometimes is that feeling of what's well, this on the internet and we all mm. know that the internet is this, you know, cesspit of the low of the low, but it translates to trackside. Absolutely. So what I think would be interesting is to, yeah, perhaps explain how we can benefit from drawing attention to the quantity and some of the nature of the comments that are out there. Yeah, I'm kind of over people saying that these are just trolls on the internet, keyboard warriors, whatever. It's like, no, those are inherent actual beliefs that people carry around with them day to day. They are not bots. They are still human beings. They're still writing these things. They still go through and like from a psychology point of view, like for me it's it's so interesting to understand like how someone A, writes it in the first place from the thought so they thought it they've written it out they've reread it or like they've created this image they've gone this person probably spent hours creating this image right they've spent time executing this and then above all else they've decided that they're in a safe enough place or they're in their mindset is supported enough that they can post this on the internet and that to me is insane I I'm so intrigued by the psychology of people that do this. And we have seen it trackside. We've seen it in, you know, and I, again, I'm not going to shy away. You know, I've been very open about my experience in Austria. And then 12 months later, we saw it happen again. Um, Thankfully, we didn't see it this this year, which is amazing. But these people carry these opinions and they bring them trackside. And they also, if we're just talking about the sport, that's one thing, but they carry them these thoughts with them into society and Mm. that is a huge problem if you consistently think that women are less than that women don't belong here or you know that people of color don't hold any weight in our society then that's a huge problem Mm. and you know I put content warnings on all of my things but I I was just sick of people always saying that it didn't exist so for me and this has been my business model now into what I'm doing but 
my thing is like let's prove there's a problem before we can actually talk about how we resolve it because you can always say there isn't a problem, there isn't a problem, there isn't a problem and people want you to believe there isn't a problem Mm. but there is Mm. Um, and anyone that's been on the receiving end of any of that or anyone that actually goes into any social media space will see that there are people commenting this and they aren't rare. No. They aren't rare. And so we need to really, first of all, address it. Yeah. And I would say it's been predominantly positive. Um, obviously, you're always going to have people that challenge it and think that, you know, you're focusing on one thing you shouldn't. And, mm. But or if you if you look for it, you'll find it kind of thing, you know, that idea of going, well, of course, there's nasty stuff out there, but you're out there looking for it. And it's like, <laughs> and, and yet it's remarkably easy to find though. Yeah, and yeah. I would have people that would challenge the findings in terms of like, oh, it's actually not that bad. Like the percentage of abuse is not that bad. And yeah, I guess you could argue that, but then you look at the comments and the weight of the comments mm. and you're just like, no, no, no. This isn't someone saying you're doing a bad job. This isn't someone saying like, this isn't a, an opinion. Even then, why would you say that? You know, yeah. like if you thought someone was actually doing a job badly, like, What do you get out of actually telling someone that? But this is actual threatening violence. Like this is not – and and that it's not. I disagree with your opinion or yes. your analysis of this race, yes. and you know you thought that the arrow was going to work and it didn't, and yeah. so you know it's. Or you it's think not, the strategy was wrong. Exactly. Or, you know, fine, no. whatever. I think we can take that. This is actual abuse and threats, and and that is where it gets scary. Is mm. that there are people out there that are so filled with hatred that they are threatening people's lives. Oh, totally. And just, again, you know, it's that idea that they are so threatened. Like their Mm. beliefs about their place in the world and their beliefs about the world have become so threatened that they've lashed out against it. The problem is that the profile of people who engage with these actions means that appealing to their humanity is unlikely to be effective because they enjoy the fight. So you get this, um, you know, unfortunately a lot of people, these people might have these behaviours actually off outside of their online presence. You know, yes, we have the, the platform of the internet which allows people to be anonymous. It allows them to dehumanise their subjects, which we know is one of the fundamental traits to being able to cause harm to another human, um, which is why the online, you know, why the internet obviously has allowed it to manifest. But you you do find that those people who behave in that way off online actually behave in the same way offline as well mm. in their in their relationships, um, in their interactions socially. They might be a little bit toned down because they yeah. would be arrested for that behaviour if anybody yeah. saw it. Um, but they're otherwise, you know, showing those potentially even dark triad type personality traits outside of their online presence as well and what that means come back to my initial point, I'm really bad at going off into no, tangents, but, um, <laughs> is, is that appealing to their humanity doesn't work because mm. when you reply or you say let's try and be kind here, that appeal to their inner humanity doesn't work yeah. because they, they're like, great, I've got a response. And that is actually the kick that they want because they take pleasure in having, having caused somebody else discomfort or pain even. And so – that's where, you know, when you, when you start engaging those discussions, you just go, how do we possibly confront this? Which does lead to my next question. When you see the scope of the issue and you feel like you're up against a beast 
um, when it comes to the behaviour within this community in particular, how do you stay focused on your mission and your goals of trying to create positive change? I think that's hard and I think as someone that is kind of doing it on their own and, you know, I've said that this beast is bigger than me and it has been very confronting at times and um, it's hard. You lose, you do lose focus and you do kind of say, is it worth it? That's kind of something that I always think in my mind. I'm like, is it worth it? Um, you know, what point is your mental health more important than the mission you're trying to achieve? Um, but I think... You know, Christina said to me at the end of last year, she was like, are you sure you want to keep doing this? Because towards the end of last year, I had obviously experienced all these things with online abuse and she was one of the first people I went to when I um, saw that image. Um, She said to me, you know, you really have to reflect on this um, and figure out if this is what you want to do and if you want to keep pushing because I just feared that eventually it's going to get you. And um, and she obviously was doing it from a very supportive place and like as a friend and, and someone that cares about me. Um, but I said to her, you know what, even if I were not doing it, doing it, I'd be thinking about it all the time. I've been thinking about it since I was a young child growing up in the sport. I've been thinking about it, you know, when we saw blackface, you know, I, you know, there's so many things that I have been thinking about all my life and I feel that making action and and creating action and actually trying to achieve tangible change is actually better for me than Mm. just sitting on it because Mm. then I sit there and I kind of blame everyone else and I'm like why is this not happening it's where if I feel like I'm pushing forward then it's worth it yeah one last question on this and we'll start looking towards (laughs) the future and we'll brighten the conversation a little bit but it is it's so important to have um this discussion and I'm not going to shy away from, you know, drawing more attention to it because yeah. it's so, so important um, to to discuss. The My last question on this topic is around responsibility because I think the responsibility seems to be with the recipients of this behaviour and abuse in order to try and drive change, which, again, you talk about a sense of injustice, why are the victims, um, they won't all see themselves as that but, why are the people who are being subject to this behaviour the ones who seem to be responsible for trying to change it? Again, just the sense of injustice around that is strong. So the question is what do you think F1, the FIA, race organisers, if we're focusing on the F1 element of it, can be doing better in this space to take their responsibility for the culture within the sport? Firstly, I would just like to agree that the it always falls on the shoulders of the people who are most affected by it. Um, and that's why I, you know, with the female driver, it was always about making sure that that didn't happen, making sure that we were the ones kind of leading the charge so it didn't fall on the people that were most affected by it. Um, it it's a huge part of my core mission. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it's a really tricky one because I think there's – Genuine, from what I hear internally at F1, um, that there is genuine want to do things. Um, I feel like, and I don't want to take credit for it, but the FIA have just come out recently and said they're going to do a lot to tackle online abuse. And I personally (laughs) think that I had a little bit of influence on that. I think you might have as well, (laughs) Estelle. And so that, I mean, it's motivating to see because like we've – 
you know, I've kicked and screamed enough to get in the right hands of the right people mm-hmm. to, to view this. Um, I think what the issue is is that particularly with F1, ultimately they are a brand and they want to be seen as what they are on Drive to Survive, which is this positive yeah. place. Um, I think it's a bit negligent, to be honest, and I think it's a missed opportunity. I think for them to not analyse... And I've said this all along, they could be the absolute pioneers of sport. So the trans debate would never be an issue. Mm -hmm. Women would never be an issue. Like they have the opportunity to be a sport that could pioneer complete inclusion and they don't do it. Um, I think they have to want to do it. And I think, you know, someone said to me through this whole process one time when I was trying to get people to kind of come in as investors into my company and someone said it's materiality, not morality. And by that it means like ultimately people aren't going to care unless they get benefit from it, yeah. which is really sad. It, it's it's confronting but I think that is true. So for me I always lead with like how could F1 be better for this even from a commercial point of view, you know. Um, and I think from a commercial point of view and if they're listening and I hope they are, they're missing huge opportunities here. Well, we've got the data though when it comes to other areas of business to show that, for example, diverse teams generally perform better. What you have to do is coach them on how to work together because diversity, and this is why they get higher performance, breeds conflict because we're not just talking about the colour of your skin or your gender, we're talking about diversity of thought. We're yeah. talking about different ideas. And, yes, you will find that certain women will approach a problem differently to certain men. That's a good thing. You can mm. celebrate those differences. And if you are coached on how to navigate the conflicting ideas or divergence of thought, then you can actually have a much better outcome and we've seen that and we've seen that in Australia as well when we look at the financial returns of businesses who have females in senior leadership and I know I'm talking more specifically here about women in business but it is one example as to where from a commercial perspective we are starting to get the data to come in coming in that's saying you can benefit from this financially it's not just the right thing to do this is a good business decision, which is a really important point to raise because I think we are, going back to the cynicism of adults, yeah. we can acknowledge that. We can acknowledge that it's sad um, and we can acknowledge that it's also reality um, and take both of those things together and go, okay, so again, how do we do something about it? Yeah. You know, and that's by focusing on the commercial side of it potentially. But I also just think, you know, um, there's a few things out of that that I will say. Um One of them is I hate the term diversity. It really icks me because it's become a bit of a buzzword. But I think to kind of second your point is that it's diverse thought more Mm. than anything. And if you don't have those people at the table, then you're actually doing yourself an injustice because you're only representing a small amount of people within the world. And the world doesn't look like that. Society doesn't look like that. So you're actually disadvantaging yourself by not bringing those people to the table. Um, And then second to that, I would say that – F1 has this, I think, fear of losing the traditional fans and the people that have supported it from day one. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm just that, – that's what I see. That's what I think and feel. I am a fan that is a long-term fan and I am a woman. 
But I am not as dedicated as the new age fans and I feel like that's because they feel like they have something to prove. They have to prove their legitimacy in the sport. Mm -hmm. So they are out there buying merch. I bought one hat in my life (laughs) and it's because I wanted to get it signed and give it to my dad. Like I've I've never bought merch. I've never – like – these people are dedicated. They go and, you know. Spending uh, money. Someone the other day sat across from me at the table and went from uh, last year's champion all the way to like the first world champion and knew them off by heart. I could probably, if you gave me a year, try and figure out which champion it was that year. But I could not tell you that. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not dedicated enough to go and rehearse that because I lived it. I don't, you know what because I mean? Because you don't have that sense of needing to prove your yeah. interest in the sport or and, as a legitimate fan. And yeah. I think, and what I say all the time is that if they, if F1 don't do anything to support these new fans, they've done all this stuff with drives to drive to survive it can only last for so long if they don't do anything to support these fans and to recognize that they exist within the sport they're going to lose everything they've built because people don't hang around forever fads exist and we've seen it in so much and this could potentially be another fad I mean I hope Mm. not it's the biggest rise in fans I've ever seen in my lifetime we saw it a bit with Schumacher and then obviously with Lewis um, and those champions that are like doing so well will bring fans into the sport. But I have never seen a rise at this extent in my Mm. entire lifetime of being a fan. Mm. And I'd be interested and I'm sure that is the case. Like I'd be interested to know the data on it because I'm sure that this is the biggest fan base we've ever had. Um, But, yeah, I just think that they – you know, we have a report coming out soon, um, which we will probably talk more to. And we did a survey and women were spelling, were willing to spend up to 900 euros for merch that represented them. Wow. That they felt fit them, that they felt was designed for them. Like that's crazy. No, yeah. I would never. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never. But that is like the general consensus we got is that – you know, there's a real missed opportunities for teams. There's a real missed opportunity for F1. If you don't look and at the landscape and then bring voices for those people to the table, y- you're missing a whole market. Yeah. Let's talk about that report. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this was a survey which was put out into the world, please correct me in any of these points here, to understand what the fan experience is like, particularly for um, women in motors in Formula One. Yeah. What, yeah, what, tell us what you learned. <laughs> so the full report will be coming out over the next couple of months. But yeah. I think the biggest thing we found was that women as a whole don't generally feel safe when they're live at track, okay. um, which is a huge concern. Yep. Um, but the other thing is is that most people actually, and Salesforce came out with a report that 1% of fans will actually ever Able go to, to a race. attend, yeah. The, the most interesting thing is that the way they absorb media and the way that they um, become part of the community has really been overlooked. Mm. Um, and I think... It wasn't until my adulthood and that I started going to races that I realised how unsafe it was um, because I was always in the comfort of my own home or in a safe space to watch it. Um, So there's two aspects of it. There's what does it look to be a fan that actually goes to track and what does Mm. that experience look like? But then how are you engaged sitting at home on your sofa? Yeah. Just a really quick story, yeah. Yeah. if I may. I've told this very, very briefly. Um, I think in our Discord, actually, perhaps not on, on the podcast, um, at the Miami Grand Prix, 
which while I was there, I had a great time at, loved it. You know, I thought they did a really great job of um, kind of fan interaction with whether it's cars, um, sponsors, all sorts of things. It was brilliant. However, leaving the track, um, you're in middle of nowhere in Florida of all places. Um, there was no public transport really. You kind of get a shuttle bus that went over to a train that da 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 da, da but that was not easy to find. Uh, if you're travelling to the track and you don't have a car, you're basically left with Ubers. Of course, there were none and they would cancel really regularly. you think you have one and it would disappear and I was at the track by myself for that day. Um, I was joined with people in and out throughout the day while I was there but got, coming and going, I was on my own. And I was faced with this situation of going and just again from a like someone who <laughs> thinks about the action required, I was standing there going, this is outrageous. I'm a fan at a major sporting event trying to get an Uber that I can't find that keeps cancelling. I'm an hour from Miami because of the traffic and currently my phone battery is diminishing. I've taken everything, every step I can to try and be safe in this situation. I do have a charger, but where am I going to plug it into? <laughs> um, you know, you have your battery packs, whatever else, and you just go, I have no idea how I'm going to get home in this situation. And what was really interesting was that the only people around me I could see were men, which doesn't make you feel particularly comfortable. I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I like to believe that they were all kind people. They may not have been though and you don't necessarily feel safe. And then I looked over and I saw a girl. She looked about my age and she was standing in all Daniel Ricardo's merch from like a long time ago. She had like present momentum stuff on. She had Enchante stuff on. She had all this merch and some of it I know to be at least like Instantly six safe. years old. And I was like, <laughs> you're my gal. But the other thing was that she was also standing by herself and I could see her body language. She had her head down, her cap down. Yeah arms crossed and scrolling on his phone, desperately trying to get an Uber as I was. And I just walked over and stood next to her and I said, hello, I'm by myself. I see you by yourself. I'm going to come and stand next to you. And she, the relief in her eyes just going, and eventually she, she was silent for a minute and just said, thank you so much. Because, and we were like, this is out, outrageous. Now, eventually I was able to get an Uber. I bonded her in with me and we got into Miami together and of course we gas bagged about Daniel Ricardo the entire way back um but I just thought it's so it's a missed opportunity from a some transport yeah. company out there somewhere from a business perspective we would have paid good money to know that we had a seat on a bus that takes you straight into central Miami um it is irresponsible from the uh like race organizers yeah. to say if you're a visiting fan you have no safe way of getting home yeah and I just thought this is just not a problem that's difficult to solve but has catastrophic consequences if it's not potentially, you know. And and even if the worst outcome is not something that eventuates, the hour of discomfort that you experience feeling unsafe is something that sticks with you. It's it's really interesting. But anyway, I just, yeah, we saw these two, two girls just locked eyes and we realised that we could try and keep each other safe in that situation. I mean, it's so nice that you you had that result because that doesn't happen very often. Right. And I've many a time been in that situation and, you know, where my phone's about to die or something because you've been like taking video all day or, you know, um, just trying to organise yourself. But I often and have always pretty much except 
with the exception of Australia, have always gone to races on my own. Um, and I, I've been in that situation a million times over. And I think F1 would probably argue it's out of their control because it's the race organisers' um, you know, responsibility to organise. And I will say that... Um, OzGP get better at it every year. Yeah. It's very clear where you can get your taxis from, your Ubers, um, buses, trams, yeah. whatever you need. It's very well signposted and I've never had a huge issue, like maybe a waiting issue, but mm. I've never ever had an issue in terms of being able to access. I mean, it helps that it's a city circuit. So, sure. you know, you're amongst it and if you walk somewhere, you're not going to really be like in the middle of, you know, butthole nowhere. Yeah. But like um, – I think it's. It, I think even signposting it is a huge, simple thing that race organisers can do, mm. um, but they don't. But they don't. It's not clear. It's I've wandered the streets in of Italy. I've wandered, you know, Austria. <laughs> I've done it all, thinking like, where the hell am I? And I don't know this place at all. My phone's dying. My reception's really bad. Like. Yep. Am I gonna die tonight? Like, yeah. no, and I say that as I laugh, but I think as a woman, you feel that, that every day of your fear. life. Yeah, it and is. it is a genuine fear. Yeah, and it's not something that again we don't. Yeah, a lot of people will not understand yeah. that that, yeah. that is is something that's real and happens all the time. And whoever takes responsibility for it, quite quite frankly, I don't care whether it's F one or the race organizers. Make it part of your contract. If you want to host next year, show us your transport plan. Yeah, um, and but even with Silverstone. Um, we ended up, we did end up driving out there, but it was quite clear that you, they had shuttle buses from Milton Keynes and I was, because I was going to go originally, I was going to go by myself and it yeah. didn't end up being the case, but I had a plan as to how I was going to get there. I knew how to get there. I was ready yeah. for a wait time. I think that's understood. It's a massive event. You have short of 500,000 people there. Get in line. I completely appreciate that. That's okay. Um, but at least it'll be clear that there will be shuttle buses between this point and this point. And at that yeah. point you're at a major train station, you can go wherever you like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not like that in certain parts of the world. I'll say that was part of my hesitation about not going to Silverstone this mm. year. So I'm glad to hear that you didn't find that experience. Yeah. But that honestly for me as someone that was going to be going on their own, that to me was like I don't want to have to go through another situation where I feel yeah. like I'm stranded. Yeah. Um, so that is part of the reason why I didn't go. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a multitude of reasons why I didn't go but that is one of the thoughts that ran through my mind was like I honestly cannot be kind of bothered to go through that experience Yeah, no, again. totally. And I'd done, you know, just hours of research because of my Miami experience yeah. to go I will not be in that situation again. It was yeah. horrific. Um, feeling so unsafe for such an extended period of time. And so that was that was going to be the deal. I'm like, I yeah. have to be confident about this in order to go. And it's just not something that other people experience. When mm. I say other people, I mean men. I do. And because it's just you don't have the safety risk factor. Um, and, you know, you could add other countries to that and then you throw in a language barrier as well, at least as in an English-speaking country. So you can speak to people around you and try and understand where you are potentially. But like you said, there's some basic signposting and um, I think it personally I think it should it's an it's a no brainer and something should be part of, you know, agreeing to host future races. There, there is, sorry, just I know we're going off topic no, a little bit. Right. But I have yeah. actually created a solution to some of these problems, but I cannot talk about it right now. <laughs> but there is a project that will be coming out hopefully in the next couple of months that will um, that I think that F one and 
race organizers and circuits should get behind yeah. because I think honestly I've created a solution to a lot of their problems but I think it'll also make a lot of fans feel safe yeah so can't um, wait to hear all yes, about it when you yes. can when you can share that yeah, absolutely. let us absolutely let us might know might have to do a second episode you know we'll talk do a about second it. episode maybe in 12 months we can <laughs> review what's been successful what's, and what hasn't what's happened <laughs> all right Let's look forward um, to the future. You have some very exciting projects coming up yes. and some of them you might be able to share, some of them you might not be. But I would love to talk about the collective drive if we could. Of course, yeah. Firstly, if you can explain to our listeners, what is the collective drive? So the collective drive was born out of the sense that um, I felt like the female drive no longer represented what I was trying to do. Although the female drive still exists and, you know, I still have done a lot of work within that. I feel like it didn't accurately represent what I was trying to achieve um, and who I was trying to represent. And I think the name insinuated that it was just about women, even though it was never the case. So the collective drive literally started... It started as one thing and then changed drastically to another. So it actually – it predated more than equal F1 Academy, things like that, where I wanted to create a scholarship program to develop young women drivers. So from karting level all the way through to kind of Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2 and then ultimately Formula 1. Um, but as that process happened and as I started seeing things coming onto the market, I started reassessing where the need was um, – and just naturally, you know, everyone always tries to say to me, you need to pick a focus and just be on that. But I can't sit with myself knowing that I am only looking after women and women alone when that doesn't actually – it doesn't feel good to me that you would only bring one extra person to the table. Like why would you just say, hey, you know, we need to do more for women when – Although they aren't all the same problems, a lot of them are paralleled um, and so why would you try and solve one issue for one person when there's so many people that aren't represented within this community? Um, so it'll be based out of Australia and the UK and with hopeful global reach. Um, but yeah, basically we're a research and development company that is analysing the problem similar to what we did with online abuse. We are actually saying hey here are the facts here's the data this is what it looks like but not leaving it there and actually creating pathway plans to combat that that problem area yep there's a sentence in your company aim which resonates with me 1000 <laughs> percent, probably because of my background and what i do outside of podcasting which is we firmly believe that the seeds of this change are rooted in meticulous research and nurtured by groundbreaking innovations it's the research past really stands out to me obviously we understand it needs to be followed by the innovation and the change itself but can you talk about why the research and meticulous research is so important I think for me I was sick of te people telling me that the problems didn't exist yeah so for me the research aspect of it and I come from you know at, at the moment I'm working in like a research management background so yeah. it kind of felt natural for me to kind of focus on that because I think that for us to actually create change, it's not public opinion. It's like, what are the facts? What does this look like? And how can we ultimately combat it? And so I, everything I do, I research. <laughs> so it just felt natural to me to actually understand the landscape that we're dealing with first and foremost. And then from that, we can understand how do we move forward? And I think having intricate research is one of the problems that we find is everyone gets painted with the same brush and we think that there's a solution to fix all problems and that's just not accurate. 
And one of the biggest things for me is I'm not asking for equality, I'm asking for equity. And I think that gets lost because people feel they need to give you equality. Um, Equity to me means understanding that humans are different, have different needs and talents and experience and you you need to actually take that into consideration. So, you know, I always say used to really frustrate me when I would see online that people would write, but women aren't good enough to drive in F1. And I always, you know, my answer to that or question to that is compared to what? And, you know, Albert Einstein was, I think, incorrectly attributed to this quote, but if you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it'll forever be stupid. And I feel like that resonates so much in this industry but all industries in the sense that if you don't look at someone and what their specific needs are and also try and cater to that we have a whole sport and people argue this you know we have a whole sport that is built around one person the car development everything is built around one type of person so of course women are going to get in a car and struggle to drive it because it was was built without them at the table or without them in mind it was never built for them same with people with disabilities same with you know different able-bodied people like if you don't put those people in the forefront of your mind when you're designing something of course they're not going to be part of the picture and that is a huge problem and people just think that women can step up to the plate and drive and (laughs) they're already at a disadvantage before they've even started so how can we ever actually see change in the sport when we don't analyze it there's a inherent problem and we almost like need to like demolish and rebuild again but they have the money to do so they have the money to make changes they've adapted cars for Robert Kibitza you know they've adapted sims and and things for other people they have the 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 way to do it it's whether they want to do it and I think that's thing that's and that's why I look at things holistically as well. Mm. You've got to change culture and mindset before you can actually want people to see change. Um, so that's why I look at it at every aspect because it is, a, you know, it's an ecosystem ultimately. And if we don't analyse culture versus drivers versus engineers versus media, you know, it's all encompassing. It's all part of it. Um, yeah, so that's why I think we just naturally grew into this thing that didn't look at one problem area, Mm. even though everyone told me not to. (laughs) (laughs) I like it when people do things when they are told exactly to do the opposite or to not do it. And we actually just brings to mind um, the interview with Mate Caceres recently um, from F1 Academy and she said, I want to drive and basically her parents said no because you're a girl. Um, and then she met Fernando Alonso and he was like, you should definitely drive. And she was like, okay, all right, we're doing this. Get out. It's <laughs> amazing. He said, look, it's going, it's going to be really hard. If you're passionate about it and if you love it, do it. Um, and I was frustrated on her behalf because she is now like, you know, you do have girls who have been able to, you know, they've been more supported through karting and that type of thing at such a young age. And she said, you know, I didn't get started until I was 17, which is really late. And now like, I feel like I'm playing catch up and I'm frustrated because of the, the years that I feel like I lost in development, but I'm here now and I'm going to take giant steps every, in every single opportunity. But um, I just love it when you hear someone say, yeah, ever told me not to do it, did it anyway. And I was like, except for Fernando Alonso who said, you should do it. <laughs> One of our directors is Tatiana Calderon and hearing her stories and her experiences are just you you always think like could she have been everything she wanted to be had 
circumstances not held her back? Like is it talent or is it circumstances? And it kind of taps into what I was talking about, Matthew Mm. Newson. Like what are the opportunities and, and what has affected her career? And I just think it's disappointing even like Susie Wolf, Tatiana, to think what they could have been. Mm. I mean, Tatiana's still driving so she still yeah. can. But, yeah. you know, she's coming obviously later into her life and mm. so the opportunities are even harder for her. Um, the development's even harder. Yeah. Um, but I always think like what could they have been had they been given – you know, the right opportunities. And I look and I case study this all the time, um, not so much about women, but if you look at someone like Nicholas Hamilton versus Lewis Hamilton, mm-hmm. great example yep. of where potentially society and opportunity has stopped um, progression mm. in the sense that Lewis is a seven-time world champion. His brother who grew up in the same household um, has cerebral palsy but is – having to fight every year to get his racing license and he's being held in a different standard. And I understand from a safety perspective why that is, but I also just think the sport has this great thing of saying to people, we never told you you couldn't be here, but you also didn't do anything to actually make it easier for people to access the sport or you never did anything to make sure that those people were accounted for in your you know, in your regulations, in your building of cars, like anything like that. Um, and I think it's a huge, huge problem. Yeah. You mentioned Tatiana Calderon. Yeah. Your board is made up of some astonishingly inspirational people. Some names we're very familiar to motorsport fans yeah. um, and listeners of Lakeside Drive. So Jess Dane, for example, obviously very familiar with both UK and Australian motorsport world, but also Christina Emanuelides um, and Tatiana Calderon. We've done profiles on both of those on Lakeside Drive here. And of course, Tony Cohen Brown, who we've hosted as a guest. How did you go about identifying and then assembling this powerhouse of a board (laughs) it's so funny because like you go into it thinking you want one board and then you end up with the greatest thing you've ever created and it's like my proudest achievement is our board of directors in the sense that I was very meticulous about how I selected each board member and I did not select anyone that I thought um that was just there for show, I suppose. I think we have enough of that already in the sport. Um, I wanted to make sure that every single board member, A, complemented each other and B, brought something to the table that I didn't have, you know, and that's really important to me is to the th- areas in which I potentially lack is to surround myself with the people that carry it really well. Um, and so it was never intentionally supposed to be all women. These women have come in on merit and merit alone. Um, and it's a funny thing because a part of me was like, shit, I really need to get a guy on this board <laughs> because it's all women at the moment. Um, we were supposed to have seven board members. Uh, so I think na- I think eventually we will bring in a seventh. Um, but yeah, everyone that's there is there on merit and everyone compliments each other. Like everyone has a specific skill set. Everyone has a particular passion. Um it's just so nice. It's honestly, as I said, it's one of my greatest achievements is my board. Yeah. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with it. In, say, 15, 20 years, you look back on the collective drive and the work that the company has done and the impact that it has had and you feel that sense of accomplishment and contribution and fulfilment. What are the things that you would be seeing in that ultimate question being what, what would success look like? 
really dumb consulting question, I know, but I'm intrigued <laughs> as to what you feel a significant enough impact would be because you carry so much passion mm. in what you're doing that I get the sense that almost it's never enough, you know, in terms of how much we need to do. Yeah. So what what would an inch of success look like? It's funny, like people often ask me what the end game is and I was like, you know, why should there be? <laughs> there, yeah, there really isn't an end game. But I think one of the reflections I had to look at from a business perspective is what's the business model and how does this have longevity and like what does that look like in 10, 15 years? And I was kind of thinking like, oh, you know, what happens when we solve all the problems? <laughs> like what does that look like? But I, I think, love the confidence. Yeah, it's very... <laughs> Very clear that uh, a it's going to take a very long time. I'm not expecting, and I'm not an, a complete idiot. I know these things won't happen in 12 mm. months. Um, but also, as you peel away the layers, the amount of problems that arise is insane. Like it, I can't believe how many issues there are. And if there's not one thing, there's another thing. And people are coming to me now like an agony aunt, being like, "What's the solution for this? Yeah, what is yeah. you know?" People get wind of what I'm doing, and they're like, "So I have this problem," and I'm like, "Great, another project!" <laughs> like, and I just add it to the list of things that we need to look yeah. at and need to analyze. Um, I think ultimately it would be great to know that someone like Matthew Newson is racing and being supported in the community. And that goes for women. That goes for, you know, I'm sick of this. I'm going to create a woman F1 champion. I want to see women, yeah. plural. I want to see women in motorsport. And that's the other thing is like we are doing a driver development program still that is still part of what we're doing, even though other people are doing it. I always argue there's, you know, 10 F1 tra teams trying to achieve all the same thing. The more we can feed through the system, the better. We're yeah. lacking in numbers. So the more that we can raise that awareness and get more people involved, um, you know, it's all for the betterment of the sport. So I think there's huge strides we need to make. Um, but, yeah, I think hopefully ultimately the collective drive stands to its name and it's not just the underrepresented people that are like battling to get stuff done. I hope that the mentality of the sport changes. I hope people are interested in this change and not seeing it as a negative, which they always try to paint it as mm. such. It's just so ridiculous. Um, yeah, I hope it, I hope that the sport kind of reflects our society. Yeah, amazing. Well, Estelle, thank you so much for joining no me worries. on Lakeside Drive. You carry a passion and a want to actually see change through your own actions and actually kind of taking responsibility for the, the change that you want to see through what you're actually doing and how you're spending your time and prioritising your energy, which is not something that many people can can honestly say about <laughs> themselves. And, I think I'm a bit of a psycho. And, <laughs> <laughs> leave that to me. We'll find out yeah. later. <laughs> but it's um, – no, I mean that in terms of saying, look, and I understand that not everybody has the same experience as you do or, you know, has the time and all of those types of things. But that's how you're choosing to expend the, the energy that you have and I'm really grateful for it because I think it's going to make the sport a better place it's going to make the world a better place and we can't wait to catch back up again in 12 months for that review and yes. we'll see how it's all going but thank you so much for joining thank me it's a brilliant conversation no thanks for having me you know once I said to you before the interview began once you start me I can't really stop I've tried to restrain myself <laughs> as much as possible but no I mean I live and breathe this so talking about it is always a good relief <laughs> All right. We look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks Thank so much.
Sports Social Podcast Network.